You're listening to Rethinking Trade with Lori Wallace. Small business owners and farmers are protesting the green WTO and NAFTA are transnational forms of autocratic governance. The United has never seen anything like it. Welcome back to Rethinking Trade, where we don't just talk about trade policy, we fight to change it. I'm Ryan, and I'm joined once again by our in-house trade expert, Lori Wallach. Amongst the daily diet of Trump lies, we hear a whole lot about his great trade achievements. Thankfully, there's actually data that tracks these outcomes, and we've been tracking that data. What are the big numbers that you see, Lori, and what do they mean on the ground? So Trump came up with a bunch of pledges that he would transform our trade policies. He said he would get rid of the trade deficit, which is ginormous and is a drag on growth, but also represents us importing things we used to make here instead of employing people to make the things we buy. He said that he would end job outsourcing, meaning U.S. companies relocating production to low-wage countries to make things that they then ship back here to sell, that they used to make here. And he said he would do all of this quickly. And he also said he would rebuild manufacturing. And the government actually tracks every month what U.S trade balances and flows are. So we have trade deficit data, and it's the same measure over time. So we can compare it to you know before he was in office. Same thing with the jobs data. So the big top line, I would say, is that if you compare the trade deficit in Trump's last year of this term in office, and you got seven months of data by by the beginning of September. We had seven months of data for 2020. It's almost 13% higher, the trade deficit, than when he entered office. So not only didn't he get rid of what he identified as a job-killing trade deficit, but in fact, the Trump trade deficit's bigger than, say, the same period in the last year of the Obama administration. Another data point that we pulled out is that the July 2020 deficit is the largest monthly deficit since July of 2008. In the midst of the financial crisis. Yep. So not only is that pretty stunning, but also the fact that the $340 billion trade deficit in the first seven months of 2020 is larger than the already ginormous $300 billion deficit during the same period in 2016. It's also in the context of the COVID crisis having crashed trade volumes. So we see that the actual overall flow in trade is down. And as a result, we see that if you compare 2020 to 2019, the deficit's down. And despite there being a decrease overall in trade of 15% COVID-related, the trade deficit's up almost 13% relative to 2016. That is not what Trump promised. And it's not what he's saying. 
So the data is his own government's data, and it's equally compelling when it comes to the issue of outsourcing. Trump said he'd get rid of outsourcing. But the reality is 300,000 plus more jobs have been certified by the Department of Labor under the Trump administration as having been lost to trade. And that's just under one narrow program called Trade Adjustment Assistance. That's not even the whole count of the, of the loss, because that trade adjustment assistance is basically a program where you can get extended unemployment benefits, retraining money, but you have to know about it. You have to prove your job was lost to trade. And so it is by proponents of our current trade rules considered maybe a one out of 10 count of the actual loss, 300,000 certified jobs. So not uh, the end of outsourcing that Trump promised. We dig into the trade adjustment assistance numbers in a previous episode, so folks should should go back and give a listen if you want to get deep into that data. With the deficit, Lori, normally a reduction in trade would generate a reduction in the deficit, but that hasn't been happening. Is that due to the inept way that Trump has handled the pandemic or a lack of preparedness to deal with a health crisis of this magnitude, or are there other things at work in that? So the economic impact of the COVID crisis certainly is related to our hyper-globalization system implemented for the last 25 years by agreements like the World Trade Organization and NAFTA, where we have really concentrated supply chains so that we are so reliant on imports from just one or two countries for things we vitally need every day, so that when you have people in a country get sick and the factories close down or the ports close down, or a country like China, where a lot of the personal protective equipment we use and medicine is made, decide reasonably, the government decides they need the stuff for people in their own country, we end up with both huge, worse health impacts, we can't get the things we need to be healthy and safe, but also economic impacts in this over-integrated, hyper-globalized economy. So it is certainly the case that when we saw the fall off in trade, it wasn't a shock. We saw that after the global financial crisis. What's shocking is that when trade falls off 15%, the U.S. trade deficit doesn't follow. And that is in part because of things that happened way before Trump, this whole hyper-globalized regime of NAFTA and WTO, but it also reflects the things he didn't do in the three and a half years plus that he's been president. So there was a lot of talk, for instance, about on day one, he would hold China accountable for manipulating currency. We're going to have a future podcast about how this currency manipulation business works. But the gist of it is, if a country holds too many dollars, it holds up the value. It buys dollars in currency markets, and it holds up the value of the dollar. Or if it basically intentionally takes actions to reduce the value of its currency, Both things mean that effectively you're subsidizing exports from your country to the U.S. and you're making it too expensive for things made here to be sold in your country. Well, Trump never dealt with that with China. So the Section 301 tariffs have reduced some imports from China, but relative to systematically dealing with some of these structural imbalance causes... He didn't take action. And he also never took action on the thing you can do to improve demand on the U.S. side, which is buy American. He made a lot of executive orders and announcements and got a lot of press about improving buy American, but they actually never followed through. 
And so instead of having you know billions more of U.S. purchase of government purchases of U.S. made stuff, we're still purchasing with our tax dollars, basically outsourcing them to purchase stuff made elsewhere, despite having a law that if it were being enforced properly, that Trump could have done that unilaterally without Congress, that would have reversed. So some of that dynamic is stuff that needed to get fixed, that still needs to get fixed, that has not gotten fixed. Let's talk more broadly now about manufacturing and the Purchasing Managers Index, the PMI. Our research director told me to ask about that, and I said, sure. And then I was like, I have no idea what that is. So maybe you can tell me and the listener what this is and why it's relevant. So the PMI is basically an indicator of the health of the manufacturing sector in that it basically is forward orders for inputs, for equipment. And so you can see it's an index in the sense that it's looking forward of what activity is happening now that can try and project what is going to be happening the month or two or six or a year after. So people look at the PMI index, which if it's 50% or better is basically constant. If it's higher than 50% growth in a sector, if it's lower, it's contraction in a sector. And the reality is that the manufacturing sector started to grow in the last couple of years of the Obama administration. And that growth continued into the first two years of the Trump administration. And you can see that whether you look at the Bureau of Labor Statistics numbers of manufacturing jobs, or if you look at the PMI, there's, there's an upward trajectory basically over a four-year period. So if you start to look in 2019, well before the COVID crisis, in the middle of the year, you start to see the job numbers, but also the PMI flatten, and then it actually starts to decline. So the Trump administration likes to say they were going gangbusters, that they were creating so many manufacturing jobs, that they had done something miraculous, and then COVID ruined it. Well, actually, they were on the same trajectory as the previous administration for two years, and then they flattened out, and then COVID happened. So the notion that somehow the administration is the great champion of manufacturing jobs It is true that a lot of manufacturing jobs are created in the first years of the Trump administration, just like they were in the last two years of the Obama administration. But that sadly ended well before the time that the COVID crisis hit. And in some states, there are now net losses in manufacturing jobs. It's generally fairly flat. And because there's been mass outsourcing still, like in Michigan, the rate of outsourcing has been related to trade related job loss has been two times um, higher, faster than it was in the three years previous to Trump. In some states, the numbers are really not good. These numbers and, and this data is all fairly depressing and I guess a bit not surprising. Do you think that Trump is getting away with selling one story and, and obviously uh, living another? I think that we have the same problem on issue after issue, which is People who want to believe Trump has fixed a problem don't want to hear that factual evidence to the contrary and shut it out. And people who think Trump is a disaster are happy to season any evidence reinforcing that. And the big question to me practically 
is in states where manufacturing and trade really affect day-to-day the lives of communities top to bottom. Are people's lived experiences what they're thinking about? Did those jobs they were promised happen? Did they stay? Is there still outsourcing? And I, I suspect the big picture data, no matter how compelling it is, doesn't actually in most people's lives have as much impact as really what they see in front of them. Just a guess. But at least now we have all that data out in front of folks. So it's uh, pretty compelling and it's not a great picture. And where can folks find some of this data? So to make it more accessible, we've actually taken the Trade Adjustment Assistance Database, the Department of Labor's database, and we have it at tradewatch.org. That's www.tradewatch.org. You can go to our trade data center. And what we've done is we've made it more accessible because we geomapped it. So you can put in your congressional district or your city or your zip code, and you can get a list generated of the certified trade-related job loss near you, which unfortunately is not a feature of the Department of Labor's website. Or if there's a particular company you want to know what they've been up to, you can put in a company name and search. So that's at tradewatch.org. As far as this trade data, you can also go to tradewatch.org and just look at our landing page where we every month have the new trade data and we basically crunch the numbers so you don't have to. So we do the inflation controlling and we compare it to the previous year, to the previous period in the end of the Obama administration. We'd sort of do the math so you can just see the chase points. And as far as the Perching Managers Index, if you're really into that, you can actually just Google PMI and you can see it over time online. But we also talk about the PMI in each of our monthly trade releases, which again, tradewatch.org, come one, come all. Our whole job is to make this information accessible so everyone can see what the actual facts are. Rethinking Trade is produced by Public Citizens Global Trade Watch. I would encourage you to visit RethinkTrade.org as well as TradeWatch.org to educate yourself and to find out how you can get involved in the work we're doing to fight for fairer and more equitable trade policies. 